All right, welcome back. Glad to have you back. A uh, couple of quick things. Uh, first of all, kind of a sad thing. The uh, the uh, Lugos are going to be moving. They've been involved here for quite a while and just a great part of our... Con just go ahead and stand up for a second. And they're getting ready to have a baby. That's why she doesn't... I know, isn't that... So for safety's sake, they're leaving us. Wait, what? No. Um, they are moving farther away. They're going to get involved in a congregation that is closer to where they'll be living, although they're hoping uh, every so often, once a month or so, to come back and visit us. It's been great uh, getting to know them, uh, learning to love them, and then they leave. <sighs> Not that I want them to feel guilty or anything, but if they do, <laughs> side benefit. All right. Another thing to remember, uh, we, we have a prayer basket in the back. You, there's three by five cards and pens, and you can write out a prayer request. You can do it anonymously. You can leave just your first name, your initial, whatever you want. And what happens is this goes to, we have a, a small group of people who are just, this is what they want to do as a part of their ministry is just pray for people, pray for people specifically. And so you can write it out, put it back there. It will then go out to those people. It will be kept in total confidentiality. Um, and we encourage you to do that. If you would like to begin to be a part of that in praying, you can also let us know, let me know, let Jose, our assistant pastor, know, or, or, or email us at our church email, and we will, um, we will make that happen. All right. We are uh, going to look at something today. I, I, I really wanted to get to this. Um, last week, we talked a little bit about a kingly heart. We talked about David. And, and this morning, I, I wanted to take that a step further. And part of what uh, spurred me on to this was quite a while ago, I was reading a book um, by a man named Sam Harris. Uh, Sam Harris is, is a brilliant man. Uh, he's an atheist. Um, and he, he just listed like, he just wanted to list like a few things, a few reasons why he didn't believe the Bible was true. And the passage we're going to look at today is a passage that he listed. We're going to be looking in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 6. And uh, I'm going to read, it's a little bit of a long passage, but uh, it's 1 through 15, and I'm going to read that. You can follow along, um, beginning with verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bela Judah to come to, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyre and, and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And then they came to the threshing floor of Nacon. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of God come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom 
to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of God had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So we're going to be talking about this idea of the Ark of the Covenant, seeking the presence of God from 2 Samuel 6. This is a puzzling passage, and this is one of the things I love to do. I mean, we've talked about this before. I love delving into history. I love delving into culture. I love looking at things and trying to figure out why is this portrayed this way. And we're going to look at that this morning. So let's just remember, uh, just kind of a brief primer here, the Ark of God. You know, you've seen it. You've seen it in the movies. There's the Ark of God, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? It just means chest. That's what it means. On it was a gold lid, which was called the mercy seat. And two golden angels faced each other on the mercy seat with their, with their wings stretched out like shielding or covering or, or in some way over the mercy seat. It was the central piece of furniture in the tabernacle as they left Egypt throughout their wanderings and into, into Israel. And, and it was in the backmost area of the tabernacle, which was called the Holy of Holies. Before that was the holy place, and then there was a curtain, and then there was the Holy of Holies. And before you could get from the holy place to the Holy of Holies, there was a place where a sacrifice was, was given, and then the priest could be consecrated once a year to go into the Holy of Holies where it was and then deal with the sins of Israel before the Lord. And that's where God's glory resided. That's where, in a sense, His immediate personal presence was. Now, you know, we know God's everywhere. This, what this meant was God's, His glory, His immediate personal presence was right there. And David wanted that. He wanted the presence of God. He wanted this relationship. He wanted that, the ark to come back to the tabernacle. And he knew, he knew, and this is some of this is background and everything, but he knew that without the presence, this relationship, this personal thing with God, he could not make it. Not just a belief in God in general, not by obedience or ethical behavior, but this presence, this place where there's joy. That's what he's after. And the ark has been lost for 20 years in a fairly remote place. They knew where it was. It's not lost, lost, but they knew where it was. But it, it was in this remote place away from the tabernacle. And David became king. He says, I want the ark. It belongs in the tabernacle. God's presence belongs here in the midst of us. And he wanted to bring it back. Why? Because he knew God had to be central in his life and in the life of his people, in the life of his government, in the life of his society. But it went beyond that. David had learned that all this pressure, even already the pressure of being king, he needed this spiritual reality. He needed this spiritual reality in his life. He, needed, he knew that this was his only hope in being successful and navigating the difficulties that were ahead for him. And spiritual reality is what the ark represents. You know, we understand God's everywhere, but this ark, that's, that's the face of God. That's the glory of God, they would say. And glory is just this simple idea of this weight. The weight of God. The incredible presence and the spiritual reality of it. So what does this mean to me? What does this mean to you? Well, it's one thing to believe that God loves you. It's one thing to believe that God is gracious and merciful, kind of an intellectual kind of faith. And it's, 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 that's a good place to be, a good start. 
But it, there's more. It's more than just believing there is a God and that He loves me. It's this idea of now that belief has to turn into action. It has to reflect in how I live it, so that it becomes a reality in my life and it impacts my daily life. And here's the thing. When God's approval of you is more spiritually real in your heart than other people's approval of you, then you will not care when you're criticized. You will not be driven by this need for approval. If you are snubbed, it won't just humiliate you and just totally knock you down. But if you say, oh, I believe in God, I believe that God loves me, but you're depressed when you're snubbed or when you get your feelings hurt easily or you're devastated by criticism. Now, I just want to say, I understand, we all struggle with these things and they all happen to us in one degree or another. But when we really come to grips with the reality of the personal presence and the relationship of God and His great love for me, then what happens is I suddenly have this ability. I can live fearlessly. If God's power is more real to me than any other kind of power, then I can live fearlessly and I won't be hungry for power. David knew I need this spiritual reality. I need the joy. I need the contentment. I need this spiritual foundation that gets me through the worst of circumstances. And David spent the rest of his life having his life threatened, having his kingdom threatened all the time. And he knew the only way to get through that was to have a life and a joy that is not mere sentimentality. A life and a joy that is not tied to circumstances. And for too many of us, and myself included, that is so true in our lives, right? Things are going well, and people are like, how are you doing? Great! Great! I'm doing great! And then things go down the tubes, and t times get tough, and problems arise, and people say, how are you doing? Oh, man, I'm really struggling. Why? Because my well-being is tied to my circumstances at that point. And God says, you can have your well-being tied to something totally different than just your circumstances. And David realized that's what he needed. He needed that kind of power. He needed the ark back at the ta tabernacle. And so then we come to this great passage here, this troubling passage that Sam Harris said, this is why I don't believe in God. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. Now, what is going on here? This is a difficult thing. We have to wrestle with these kind of things. If we're going to say we believe what the Word of God says, we have to wrestle with the tough stuff. We can't just gloss it over and go, well, let's just go back to John 3.16. I feel much more comfortable with John 3.16. You know, it makes me feel better. This passage is what not just Sam Harris, but a number of people will say, I don't believe the Bible because of this. This shows a God who is capricious and mean. Well, Let's start tackling this. First thing, how did the ark get to this place way out in the middle of nowhere that it had gotten to? This is what had happened. More than 20 years before, just over 20 years before, the priests who were serving in the temple were corrupt. And Israel was in a war. And the priests finally said, hey, to the people, we'll bring the ark to the battlefield. Then we can't lose. So it was like a good luck charm or a good luck charm on steroids, right? It was this idea that something just emanated from the ark. And anybody who was in you know, the force field of the ark 
could not lose in battle. And what happened? They lost. Why? Because they were using the ark for their own ends. They were using the ark for, to, uh, uh, to win a battle and for the priests to enrich themselves. And so they lost. And the Philistines captured the ark. So the Philistines' conclusion was, this Yahweh God is not such a bad dude after all. He's pretty simple. We beat him. And so they brought him into their temple to their God, Dagon, and they put him kind of at the feet of Dagon, the ark, like Yahweh's worshiping Dagon. And then they came back the next morning, and somehow the, sta the, the statue of Dagon had fallen face down on its face, which is the ultimate um, sign of worship, in front of the ark. And they had another situation. They had another situation. So they said, okay, we, this, we don't like this ark. Right? So they took the ark and they sent it off to another town. And in that town, diseases started breaking out and problems started breaking out. So they took the ark then and they put it on a cart with two oxen and nobody around it. And they giddy up to the oxen and just pointed it towards Israel. Have, you can have this stinking box back. Right? And so it just started wandering into Israel. And some people stopped it and they said, Oh my goodness, this is the ark. There's some really good stuff inside the ark. This is worth a lot of money. And so they did what God said never to do. They opened it up and looked inside, and they died. So then it made everybody afraid. So they parked it at a man's house, the man we started talking about here, Abinadab. They parked it at his house, and it sat there for 20 years with his two sons, Uzzah and Ahio. Not Ohio, but Ohio. Just so you know, don't want to say anything bad about the Buckeye State. And so that's where it sits. And David, after a while, is going, it shouldn't be there. We need it. The presence of God. This is so important. And so David goes and he gets it. And this is probably kind of what it looked like. It's on a, on a, on a cart. An ox cart has no driver. It's led by somebody. And it tells us the guy who leads. And so they're driving the cart and they're singing and they're dancing as they go along. It's just a flat cart and you walk alongside it. And the, the, the cart stumbled, the, the oxen stumbled, the cart jarred evidently. And this guy, Uzzah, who is unfortunately named, I mean, if that's your name, you're stuck with it. But wow, yeah, don't think his parents liked him maybe. Um, he reaches out. He touches the ark. If there's anybody here named Uzzah, okay, I'm sorry, right? I don't want to, all of a sudden somebody's going, hey, that's an old family name. Right, whatever, okay. But, you know, to me, I look at that and I think, oh, this could be the scene from a great movie, right? You know, dun, 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 dun. everybody's dancing, right? And they're doing this and they're doing that. And, and suddenly, you know, ba boom And you just, and it all goes slow-mo, right? And you see Uzzah going. And you see some older guy who knows more about what you're not supposed to do. No, don't touch it. You know, and he touches it and, and, and it's some cool indie, Indiana Jones, you know, and he, and he falls to the ground and somebody's screaming, ah, call 911, you know, and, and then you get that climactic moment right in all those movies where somebody kneels next to him and listens. He's dead, you know, and then everybody just, they're by the arp and they just start going, dude. That thing's loaded, right? Be a great movie. I don't know. Maybe not. Some of you, some of you obviously don't think it would be. All right. So, so here we go. You know, and, and, and then Scripture tells us something very important. David is angry and he's scared. Okay, the scared part I totally get. 
right? The angry part, though, he's angry at the Lord and he's scared. Right? So why does this happen? Here we are. This is an incredibly difficult verse. Why, why does this happen? All right? To, and to understand that, uh, we have to go back a little bit. But I, I just I, I want you to know, people have wrestled with this for years. I've seen a lot of different things that people have said about this. But for many people, they say, yep, primitive religion. This is ridiculous. This is why I don't believe it. But let's think about this. Here's, here's one of the things that's, that's important for the transportation of the ark. If you go back to Exodus, you go back to Deuteronomy, this is what it talks about. It says the ark has to be covered when it's transported. It has to be carried by people when it's transported. Not be, and it's made, it has little round circular things so a pole would go through each side and so men could hold the pole and carry it. It had to be carried by Levites, specifically a certain people from the tribe of Moses and Aaron. They were and they were people who were consecrated for the carrying of the ark. There was a special thing that happened. And finally, the ark could never be touched. You can't touch it. So these were the rules for transporting the ark. And if you've ever heard somebody, and I've heard a few people talk about this, they'll just say, well, they broke all the rules. No wonder he was struck dead. They broke all the rules. All the rules seem to be dis, uh, uh, disregarded. Uzzah is not a Levite. All right? the, it wasn't being carried. It was on a cart. It wasn't being carried by people. It was obviously touched because somebody put it on the cart. We, we, we have no clue. It's not even mentioned that it's covered. Uh, but I would think if they ignored the big ones, covering would be a little one that wouldn't even bother them to ignore. So they broke the rules. And what you'll hear some people say is, well, he broke the rules. I mean, we know the rules. So he touched it. I mean, it's his fault. But see, I feel like that's not a complete... I don't, that's not a satisfying explanation for me. And here's why. Because then we have this problem. People just say, what kind of God just kills people dead for breaking a rule? And another person might say, if this is the way God is, and some people do say this, this is the way God is. If you don't follow His rules, He does not bless you. But if you follow His rules, He'll bless you, bless you, bless you. And that leads to prosperity ideas and, and health and wealth ideas. And I don't think either one of them are very satisfying. Because here's the thing. Let's think about this. Look at the rules. Why did they not all drop dead? The people who put it on the cart, why didn't they drop dead? They touched it, all right? It's not supposed to be on a cart. It's supposed to be carried. So why didn't everybody drop dead from that? And, and so with all these things, somebody picked it up. Somebody put it on the cart. It's the wrong kind of way. They didn't use the poles for carrying it like they're supposed to. And David was in charge of the whole thing. Why didn't David drop dead? He's the person most responsible. He probably said, let's get it on a cart. Come on, guys. Everybody pitch in. Right? And so, in other words, Uzzah did not die because there's this kind of a force field around the ark that if you get a little close, you, you start tingling. And if you get too much, it really starts to hurt. And if you touch it, it kills you. That's not, the, that's not what's going on there. And so we have to understand something. This shows us that there's something more going on. And this is really important for us to, to understand as we deal with this passage. And to understand that, we have to dig a little bit deeper. Hang with me on this. We have to understand what the culture is of the day. When we look how the ark is treated compared to other artifacts, other relics, 
other idols, of other religions, right? And, and if you, even today, if you see some places where relics or artifacts are brought out, and you can see that some places in the Middle East where something is brought out that is considered holy, what happens is everybody pushes towards it and wants to touch it. Everybody says, you know, I, I, I want to kiss it. I want to rub it. I want to throw money to it. I want to pray to it. What is going on there? Because the power of the deity is mollified. It's appeased. The deity is flattered if you reach out in religious fervor and in, de in devotion. You show the deity how important the deity is to you so that the deity will bless you. And so when we see those things going on, even, even uh, in some parts of the Middle East where someone who's considered a holy man that might, might become deified, what happens in their funeral? Everybody wants to touch the coffin. Why? Because they believe that that person in the afterlife will then now bless them. It's that whole idea. It's the same idea. It, with the Philistines, when a small statue of Dagon would be brought out in a parade, everybody would push, push to touch it, to kiss it. They'd throw coins to it. Why? Because they believe that by doing these things, I show how great my devotion is to this deity. Now this deity will bless me. Now, do you see how that, how that can affect people? Because then what happens? What happens? The people who throw the bigger coins get more blessing. The people who are stronger to get in close and touch it get blessed. And the people who are smaller and weaker who can't get to it, they don't get the blessing. This is what it's, it, it automatically sets up inherent discrepancies, inherent problems with how people get blessed by this deity, how people relate to this deity. So can you see, God wanted the ark, think about this with the rules, God wanted the ark treated in exactly the opposite way. Exactly the opposite way of all other religions. And it's not just the idea that the ark was untouchable, it's much more than that. In the tabernacle, what has to happen for a person who comes to the ark? Well, there's an altar, and a sacrifice has to be made once a year, Yom Kippur. The high priest comes into the presence of the ark and he has to have a special sacrifice. He has to be specially cleansed and he brings a bit of the blood of that sacrifice to the mercy seat, sprinkles it there so that God will have mercy on his, his nation, his people. And so these rules and regulations, they tell us this. In other religions, you can reach out with your religiousness with your morality, and you can get power through your deity. But the Ark of the Covenant teaches us something else. It teaches us that there's this great chasm between humanity and God, a huge divide that cannot be bridged by morality or devotion. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be an atonement that is made. So Uzzah, he did break the rule. But the question is, the deeper understanding is, in a sense, why did he break the rule? Why? Because Uzzah rejected, or he at least ignored the essence of faith in that context. The gospel, even in the Old Testament context, which says you can't go to God with your good works. There is a chasm that can only be bridged by some kind of gracious provision. And Uzzah was either unaware or he just totally ignored it. He believed, just like with all other religions, I can touch. I can reach Him. I'm a good person. I believe the Bible. I do good things for people. But he saw no need of radical grace. 
you know, in those days, everyone knew the rules. But what has happened in those days? God is in danger of becoming, in the eyes of Israel, just another God, like all the other gods. We know, we know from our studies uh, of, of when we did um, uh, different Old Testament books, we see what's going on. They're starting to bring in other gods. They're starting to say, well, you know, we got, we got Yahweh, and, and here, you know, we got Dagon, we got Baal. We got, just, just cover all our bases, worship all of them. But there's a fundamental difference between all those other gods and Yahweh. And, and we see that expressed in how the ark is supposed to be handled, how the ark is supposed to be dealt with. It sets it apart in a way that should be obvious and striking to them, but they've begun to ignore. I mean, look at Uzzah. The ark was in his backyard for 20 years. What's the big deal? Didn't see anything big happen. You know, it, and so this is what happens. He, he did break the rule, but it's a sign of something else. The ark had become a good luck charm. That's how it was captured. And so he died, not because uh, he died, not because he broke a rule. He died because of the status of his heart, the habit of his heart, his actions. Remember, we talked about faith. Actions show it. His actions betrayed his heart. They broke all the rules and they were fine with it. Eugene Peterson says this, is, this kind of attitude is, is lethal. He says this, Uzzah is, a patron, is the patron saint of those who uncritically embrace technology without regard to the nature of the holy. They, un, they uncritically embrace technology, this idea that technology will solve all our problems. Technology will finally you know, make us so we don't get sick and make us so... And, and, and we've been doing this for a long time and it hasn't been working very well. And so Uzzah thought he could manage God. And we do that. God becomes commonplace with us, kind of blasé, right? We become habitual. We get stuck in a rut in our walk with God. And so he didn't think, he wasn't thinking biblically concerning the ark and the presence of God. And God is in the process in that time of desperately trying to wake up his people to what they're doing. And so Eugene Peterson's point is this, if we become like Uzzah, confident in ourselves and our ability to handle situations, confident in our religiousness, confident in our morally right behavior, confident that God is on my side, I can protect God, I, I can discern what's best. If God becomes commonplace in our life, it can be lethal. Well, how though? I mean, we don't have an ark now. Well, it goes like this. Maybe you have these high moral standards and your life is going well. <clears throat> then what happens? You have a tendency, and this is borne out over and over and over, you risk becoming a cold, proud, judgmental person and you will subtly think that you have earned what you have. And you will look down on others, especially those who are different from you, especially those who are failures. You're living in a morally upright way working hard, and things are going well. So you begin to think, naturally, I'm doing this. And pride is us thinking that God has given us something because we deserve it. One of the things I think that's interesting is cold and proud people still thank God for things. But they think it's because God gave it to them because they've earned it or they deserve it. And that's the difference. And that's the key, because then what are they doing? 
They're managing God. God has become, you know, their soda machine. Put in the right change, hit the right button, you get what you want. And their Christian life becomes that idea. That's one thing that happened. Another thing that happened is you, you, you live up to high religious and moral standards and your life doesn't go well. Everything goes wrong. And you feel like, man, I have earned better than this. What's going on? You still feel like you're owed these things. So you become bitter and confused. I shared a story one time. I, 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 was, I was going to a, a, a college, a Christian college, and one summer um, I had saw an advertisement. I lived in the D.C. area. I saw an advertisement for a job, and it was to sit out on a street corner. This is before food trucks. Sit on a street corner with various like fresh fruit and stuff like that, and you would sell it to all these business people, all these government workers in the morning. They'd grab stuff for lunch. They'd grab a bite for breakfast, whatever. So I went and talked to the guy, and it was decent. It was really good money. And, and he said, look, you know, you got to apply to the health department. He said, but there's a, there's a rule most people don't know, that if you apply, they give you a one-week grace period um, so that your, your health license comes in during that grace period. So you can start right away. So I went to the street corner um, um, near, right near the uh, Lafayette Square by the White House. And man, all these business people, all these people, you know, they're buying apples and oranges. And this policeman comes up to me and he says, uh, hey, you don't have your health license displayed here. You need to put that thing out. And I said, oh, well, I don't have it yet. And I'm thinking, that's probably not the right thing to say. Um, and he looks at me and goes, you don't have your health license? I said, well, I, I applied yesterday, and, and there's that week-long grace period. And he said, there's no grace period. And he looked at me, and I said, oh, I'm really sorry. And he just goes, I need a paddy wagon. And I'm like, oh, I'm sure it hasn't come to this. <laughs> Man, you don't have to take me downtown. I'll pack up all my fruit, and I'm gone, dude. And he goes, too late for that. And ten minutes later, a paddy wagon rolls up, and they throw me and my fruit in the back. I don't know if you've ever been in a paddy wagon, but it's just metal walls that are all dented up. Like every once in a while, they hit the brakes, and you're not ready, so your head hits the wall, and it gets dented. And there's blood stains. Now, I'm in there with a little table and three boxes of fruit, so what I was afraid of was, who are they picking up next, right? Because I can imagine them pick some guy up and put in, and he goes, what are you in here for? I'm like, well, what, what are you in here for? And he goes, I just killed somebody. Um, selling fruit without a license? <laughs> Would you like an apple? You know, I just was so scared, so scared. And so then, this was my next thought. My next thought was, God, I'm trying to live for you. I'm trying to serve you. I'm going to school so that I can serve you with my whole life. What the heck's going on here? Did like an angel miss an assignment or something? I mean, what is going on? I'm one of yours. I'm not, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. And it, it for, for a bit, it shook me because I thought, how is this happening to someone who's really, this is a total, you know, and uh, <clears throat> I, I, got, I paid a little fine and they let me go. But it scared me. I was held for, for about four hours in a room with a bunch of other people and I was desperately hoping they didn't ask me what I was in there for. I'm telling you because that was the scariest thing. <laughs> It'd be like, okay, bit tough guy. Um, 
So then I was thinking, you know, I need to make something up. You know, I, yeah, I killed 20 people with a ballpoint pen. Um, you know, so just, just, yeah, okay, I, I need to stop. Okay, so, so here's the thing. This is what happens. You, you, you start living it. You start living like Jesus wants you to live, and, and maybe things go successful, and, and suddenly you can become proud and think you deserve this. You've earned it. Or you start living like Jesus wants you to live. You're trying hard, and things just go down the toilet, and you're just going, oh, no. And so what happens? You become bitter and confused. Or one other thing that can happen sometimes is you can't live up to the moral standards you think you should live up to, and you just wallow in guilt and shame. You hate yourself. And this is what can happen. This is what happens when people just become religious. And it doesn't matter what religion we're talking about. Because there's Christians that are this way. And see, all these things come. Can you see this? They all come from people trying to manage God by being a good person, by reading the Bible, by faithful church attendance, whatever it might be. And all of these things, apart from radical grace, can become lethal in a person's life, just like it did for Uzzah. And so the ark is teaching us things on many levels. God teaches David and God teaches us about his place in our lives with the, with the ark. It teaches us there's a problem that must be dealt with, and the Bible calls it sin. Look at verse 9. He says, and David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? You see what's going on? David is like, I've wanted to bring God's presence. I wanted to bring this into Jerusalem. This is where God, this is where it belonged to be the pinnacle, the crown of the nation, so that people will come and they'll worship and will live for him. We'll have this relationship with him. And now he's like, I can't do it. How? Am I going to get that relationship? How am I going to get that? And see, David's eyes are opening. He's seeing something. Moving from being just a religious person to having an experience with God. Seeing the problem and wondering, how does this get taken care of? How will the ark ever come to me? I'll never be able to follow all the rules. It will never work for me. See, before, he was overconfident. He was like, Pack up the ark. Let's go to Jerusalem. Right? Now he's been humbled. He's like, how are we going to do this? And the ark tells him what the gospel tells us. The gospel says there's no one who's righteous, not one person. And God is saying maybe, you know, if you're a Bible-believing, a righteous, moral person, or maybe you're a licentious, immoral, pagan, you're just at opposite extremes. You both need the grace of God. Because no one's righteous, not one. And the ark, you know, put it in the King James, the ark smites the pagans, the unbelievers, the Philistines, when they capture it. And then it smites the children of God, the true believers. It smites them too, the Bible, the Bible believers. And so David is afraid and he's angry. He has this frustration because the ark is speaking to this frustration. The ark speaks of a sin problem, but it also speaks of the provision for the sin problem, the mercy seat. And so David leaves the ark. Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside. He stopped there at, to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Right? So, so what's going on? David says, we can't do it. Pull over. Right? Rest stop. And and. And it's a it's a Gittite. He's not he's not a he's not a, a a believer. He's not he's not part of Israel. He's a foreigner. And they're like, yeah, leave it with him. 
don't know if you remember that old commercial. Give it to Mikey. He'll eat anything, right? Leave it with that guy. And if he gets killed, he's not one of us, right? So interesting how they think this through. Give it to the foreigner. And then, you know, good luck. Kind of like, this guy's toast, right? It's already killed those people, the Philist, some of the Philistines. It's already killed those people at Beth Shemesh. Uzzah looks at it cross-eyed and it kills him. Give it to, give it to Obed-Edom. You know, like, here, park this in your garage. You'll see Harrison Ford soon. You know, something like that. And see what happens? Look at verse 11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. What's going on here? David's beginning to see something. God's not managed. He didn't want David just to know the bad news. He wanted to know that, if, that, that, that you're sinful. when you, to, you have to understand that you're sinful to be able to even begin to believe. But he also wants him to know the good news, that you can become loved and accepted more than you, you, you'd ever hoped. And so when he sees what's happening in verse 11, um, he's, God is beginning to try to teach David. There's this separation, but there's this provision through the mercy seat. But the provision we know involves the sacrifice and involves blood and death. And people ask, Sam Harris asks this, it's a, it's a relevant question. Why blood? Why death? Why can't God just snap his fingers and say, okay, you're forgiven? And that's an important question. We have to deal with that. And here's why. Because forgiveness always involves suffering. If you've ever been wronged badly, if you've ever been hurt badly, you realize that this is the kind of hurt, this is the kind of wrong, this is the kind of pain that can't just be shrugged off, can't be dismissed, can't be just set aside. There, there's an injustice that's happened. There's a liability that's happened. That's why in our culture, when they say, oh, just forgive and forget, that's a load of crock, right? That's, that's baloney. If you've ever tried that, how's that work for you? Somebody really hurts you, right? And you say, God, I'm going to forgive them. And then you walk away and you go, but I want to hit them. Ugh, what they've done to me, it makes me hate them, right? You say you want to forgive someone, but you still feel it. Why? Because forgiveness involves suffering. It always does. Because there's been an injustice. There's been a liability. Now, what can you do? Someone really hurts you. What can you do? You can make them pay. You can do the revenge thing. You can make them suffer. They hurt you badly. You tell 20 friends. And though all those friends hate that person now too. And you get a little bit of a jolt. That feels good. Everybody's on, on your side. And maybe when they see them, you know, they, they, they're always like, you're number one. They always give them whatever. And they, they, they say terrible things to them. And it makes you feel a little better. But the problem is, just making them suffer doesn't make you feel better about it. In the sense of your suffering's not alleviated. You get a little jolt of like, yeah, you deserved it. But it's never enough. It's never enough. Now, the second thing you can do is you can forgive them. You can say, I'm not going to take revenge. But then you will suffer. Because there's a pain. Because you were hurt badly. You know, if you've ever tried to forgive someone for something terrible, you know it's hurt. it hurts. You feel nails and thorns and pain and blood. If you take revenge, evil spreads. Hostility grows. 
Bitterness spreads. You take revenge on that person and your friends start taking revenge on that person. What do they do? They go to all their friends and it starts going back to you and starts going back to your friends and it escalates. It's this, it's this spiraling thing that just gets worse and worse. If you, but if you do the forgiveness route and you, and you want evil can become overcome and you become wiser and humbler and peace grows, but it will hurt. You will suffer and it is a process. It doesn't happen instantly. If you've ever been hurt deeply, you know you don't get over it right away. Even if you try as hard as you can to forgive, you keep forgiving. Why? Because there's, that's the pain that has to be worked out in forgiveness. There's a price that has to be paid one way or the other. Somebody's paying it. And so God decided to forgive. God decided to suffer. In Hebrews it says Christ went into the holy place by the blood into the holy place for us. And David sees this. Look at verse 13. And then those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. David now is addressing the sin issue. He's addressing the rule issue. Notice it's being carried now. So he's addressing the rule issue, but he's addressing the sin issue. The provision. He has a sacrifice. And so when we understand there's sin and then there's a provision, we come to God, nothing we can bring to Him. We're just we're sinful people. And He brings the provision. That begins to change us. When we see He suffered to bring me the forgiveness that I do not deserve, that's where the joy is. And David changed too. There's clues in the text about this. He changed clothes from a kingly robe to a, to a, a linen ephod, which is a very simple uh, a very simple covering. He got out of his king equipment and just put on a normal person, a peasant's robe. And before he was a part of the pro procession, now he's leading and he's dancing with joyful abandon. And he gets a lot of flack for that later. That's a whole other thing. But kings don't do that. Kings remained aloof. They wore clothes that showed their stature. And what does David do? He gets simple clothes on like everybody wears, and he gets down with them. He doesn't remain his, keep his distance as the king. He doesn't care what people think. And it tells us because he's dancing before the Lord. He's not standing for his own dignity. His identity now is based on something else. He's seen his sin. He's seen the provision. And he's realizing now the ark is going to come. Now the ark is going to come. We're doing it. It's happening. God is in this. And he's experiencing this incredible joy. So to the degree that you are not just a moral, religious person thinking that you've earned and are in control, to the degree that you understand that the gospel has changed you, realizing because Jesus paid when you realize that, you begin to see more and more the joy that is there, experience the joy, and have this sense that God loves you. We sang that. God is madly in love with you. With you. And we begin to see what He did for us. And we begin to see the truth. I love this passage. It's Zephaniah 3.17. It's, you know, a lot of have heard it. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's not aloof. He's in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So it says He's the one who will come into your midst. He will save you. 
and then he will rejoice. That word is this very emotional, a physical manifestation of love and joy and, and, and gladness that it's extreme, it's mirth, it's laughter. Isn't it a strange thing to think that God laughs with joy when he thinks about you? He laughs with joy when he thinks about you. He will be, he will quiet you with his love. This is the idea that when we, um, this, uh, that quiet is that word of being almost dumbstruck or speechless. It's this idea that we realize what God has done. It's just like no words can express it. And then it says he, he will exult over you. Another word for loud celebration. And then it says with loud singing. Literally, of just God singing it in a sense at the top of His voice, and it and it's because of you, His His love for you. See, when we begin to understand, like David began to understand, there's a sin problem, but there's a provision, and the Israelites missed that. With with the ark, just became something that was so commonplace that people took it for granted. It didn't seem that special to them, and then. Those are out of the manifestation of his heart. His unbelief was why God killed him. And also, not just his unbelief, but God is trying to shake people and say, understand what you need, what's involved here, my presence, my relationship with you. When we take our salvation, our relationship with God for granted, there is no joy, there's no dancing. But when we see him clearly, when we see what he has done, when we see who he is, we have a strength that gets us through even the toughest of times. We have the ability to forgive people even when it, it seems unforgivable. We have the ability to dance for joy for our Lord. That's what God has for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, uh, this scripture that it, it illustrates to us something so powerfully Lord, help us not to fall into that sin of taking you for granted, of making you just one more part of our life instead of the center of our life. Father, help me to do that and not to in the busyness of a daily routine to ignore you and what you want to do through me. Lord, for everyone who's here and those at home, we pray that this might be a time to stop, to think, to, to uh, reassess, to evaluate, and, and maybe to confess, maybe to express to you our need, our dependence for you, and for you, your spirit to enable us to live for you in a way that will honor and glorify you, Father, and that's where the true joy is. And so we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, one or two things. I just, I just want to mention again, uh, somebody asked me about this the other day. We have a plate in the back if you ever want to leave some sort of offering. Also on our website, fcministries.com, uh, there's the online giving uh, just so that people know that and, and uh, we appreciate because people are giving and supporting this church even through a very difficult time and we, we, we certainly appreciate the faithfulness that, uh, that is happening there. Um, I am going to be gone uh, next week. Uh, for actually for two weeks, um, oh boy, my mom's funeral, and I'm supposed to do it, and I'm not even sure what's going to happen with that. I'm such a big crybaby, but uh, next Saturday is my mom's funeral, 
And uh, so Sunday, Chris Tweed, who teaches at CNU, is, is, going, to be, is going to be speaking on faith and how we uh, apply, how we use it in our lives. Just, a, just an incredible um, uh, message. And then the next week, um, uh, Joe Marks from Young Life is going to be speaking, and, and that's always so good. And so I encourage you to come back and, and be a part of it and see what God has for you here. And I'm just thankful that um, we have people so capable and qualified um, in our midst, in our congregation. So thank you for coming. Again, I know I say this all the time. We don't ever want to take it for granted that you decided to come here this morning and worship with us, that you decided to come online with us this morning and worship with us. We appreciate it, and we never want to take it for granted. Thank you for coming. God bless you, and you are dismissed.